Christ came principally to do something. And St. Paul, using the words of Jesus in 1 Corinthians, I received from the Lord what I'm handing on to you. That is, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, broke it, blessed it, gave it to his subjects. Do this in memory of me. And then, and then Paul goes on to say, like, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. The charismatic act of the church par excellence is the Eucharist. Welcome to the Catholic Theology Show, sponsored by Ave Maria University. I'm your host, Michael Dauphiné, and today I am joined by Monsignor Michael Heinz, who is the Academic Dean at Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland. So welcome to the show, Father. Thank you, Professor Dauphiné. Excellent. So glad to have you here. And a uh, fun fact, uh, uh, you know, Father Heinz and I were actually graduate students together uh, 20-some years ago almost 25 years ago at the uh, University of Notre Dame a long time ago. So. I, I sat at the feet of the master, Michael Dauphin. <laughs> Hardly. Um, but, and uh, so we're, we're beginning, I want to do for the podcast, I want to do a handful of series or like a, a series on the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bishops in the United States have called for a Eucharistic revival, helping us, right, lay people to, or in, and theologians helping the church in the United States to really recover uh, a great sense of like revival, reviving. We have to revive, uh, relive, re-inspire our understanding of the Eucharist, our devotion to the Eucharist, right? This is really, as Vatican uh, II says, right? It's a source and summit of our faith. Absolutely. And and so often, I think it's something that we you know can easily take for granted. Uh, we know the studies in some ways uh, that sometimes come out that show that a, a number of Catholics, a high percentage of them, at least who identify as Catholics, don't believe in 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 the real presence of uh, Christ in the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. And uh, what a loss, mm-hmm. right? That people are almost alone in the world without without Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, often, I think people don't believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist because they don't really believe in the real presence of Christ. I think I think that's a big know? part of it. And, yeah. and I, of those who don't believe, I think that's yeah. exactly right. I also wonder, I would love to see the studies and the way the questions are phrased. Mm-hmm. If the question is phrased, can you explain transubstantiation, <laughs> the majority of Catholics would never have a clue. Yeah. But I do think there's a good number of Catholics who, who know it's Jesus. Yes. They couldn't say how or why, but mm-hmm. they know it is. Yeah. Does that mean we don't have more work to do catechetically, didactically, in terms of evangelization? Of course we do. But uh, so I, I think sometimes those numbers can be skewed to make it look as though sure. the Catholic Church is on the decline. Well, mm. we have our work cut out for us, yes. believe me. I think there's much work to be done yeah. in terms of encouraging both greater understanding, greater devotion, and greater practice of the Eucharist. Yeah, that's that's so well put, Father. And so uh, your, your specialization is uh, in uh, the early church, right? Mm-hmm. The great uh, the fathers of mm-hmm. the church, the apostolic fathers and, and, and uh, later fathers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought it would be great today to talk really about what do the fathers, the early fathers of the church, teach about mm-hmm. the Eucharist? Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think sometimes people, we have this certain sense of we have Scripture, and then we have the later teachings of the church. But you know, Scripture wasn't in a vacuum. It was actually written amidst the early history of the church. Precisely. And sometimes even some of the saints that we have writing about the Eucharist in the second century knew mm-hmm. people who knew people, right, who knew Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think most famously, right, uh, isn't it the case that at least uh, Ignatius and Polycarp are understood to have probably have been disciples of John? Sir, uh, Polycarp, certainly. Yes. And, and, uh, and yeah, Polycarp would have known, it was reported that he knew the Apostle John. Exactly. Yes, and I think it was, was it Ignatius that knew Polycarp? Yeah, yes, exactly. Yes, yes. yes. So, yeah. so, right, it's kind and of like... And Irenaeus knew Polycarp as well. So, and yeah. Irenaeus, that's right. And so it's kind of like if you want to know what... John mm-hmm. teaches, well, one thing would be to ask somebody who knew somebody who knew, right? You know, yes, which Irenaeus is, and Which is Ignatius. exactly how Irenaeus says we have to understand apostolic succession. Yes. You know, there's no secret teaching of Jesus. We want to know what Jesus taught. The persons to ask would be the persons who succeeded those to whom he spoke, which would be the successors of the apostles, those who are now bishops in dioceses. Yes, yes, yeah. I think right, he gives that beautiful line where he says, right, you know, and, and he, especially Peter and Paul mm-hmm. who died in Rome, mm-hmm. 
And so we can trace apostolic succession back to Rome. And that was already contested mm-hmm. around Irenaeus of, of Lyon, for listeners who may not know, is a second century uh, brilliant, um, you know, both saint and brilliant mm-hmm. bishop uh, and teacher, uh, and uh, but probably wrote around 160 and, well, yep, exactly. in, in that rough area. And uh, Ignatius of Antioch, another uh, saint, he, he died and was martyred in 107. Mm-hmm. So we're getting very yeah, close to the time of the apostles. So I thought just for listeners who, who may not be familiar, uh, there's a little section in the catechism from another, I, I believe, a, another uh, second century mm-hmm. saint named Justin Martyr. And I wanted to read this and, Father, like, ask you to kind of unpack it for the listener. So, by the way, this is in the Catechism. It's number 1345. And he basically gives a description of the Eucharistic celebration, as he puts it. And he writes this around 155. And it's just shocking. 2,000 years later, well, 1,900 years later, like this reality of the mass, we're doing, has, the, we're doing the same thing. Yes, exactly. it somehow started. Mm-hmm. And it started really as soon as we mm-hmm. have any evidence. But so this is what he says: On the day we call the day of the sun, all who dwell in the city or county or country gather in the same place. The memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets are read, as much as time permits. When the reader is finished, he who presides over those gathered admonishes and challenges them to imitate these beautiful things. Right? We have the scripture readings, Mm -hmm. and then we have uh, the homily. Then we all rise together and offer prayers for ourselves and for all others, wherever they may be, so that we may be found righteous by our life and actions and faithful to the commandments so as to obtain eternal salvation. When the prayers are concluded, we exchange the kiss, right? The kiss of peace. Then someone brings a bread and a cup of water and wine mixed together to him who presides over the brethren. He takes them, offers praise and glory to the Father of the universe through the name of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And for a considerable time, he gives thanks, right? And give thanks in Greek is Eucharistian. Mm -hmm. Right. The Eucharist is really just the giving of thanks to God. That we have been judged worthy to receive these gifts when he has concluded the prayers and the thanksgivings. All present give voice to an acclamation by saying, Amen. When he who presides has given thanks and the people have responded, those whom we call deacons give to those present the Eucharisted bread and wine and water, and take them to those who are absent. Mm. Uh, so, right, just kind of amazing. So would you uh, just kind of, there's a lot there, and sure, listeners may not sure. have heard all of it, but, and it's, again, just so people can see that if they want, it's uh, the Catechism 1345. Yeah, the, the first thing to note is that there are some people who assume the Mass is a medieval invention or a Renaissance mm. invention, or there's some who hold that basically it was the Council of Trent that told us what the Mass was. But in mm. fact, the basic structure is found as early as 155 in terms of liturgy of the Word, liturgy of the Eucharist, the, the elements, the memoirs of the apostles. By that, he means the Gospels, yeah. the writings of the prophets. Mm-hmm. All the New Testament were read together, okay, and understood together. The, the, the scriptures, the Old Testament, always is understood in light of the saving work of Jesus. So the New Testament provides the lens through which the Old Testament is under, clearly, most clearly understood. There was also a homily. Okay, he says the, the, the presider, the bishop, speaks an exhortation. There's preaching. There's also what we know as the prayer of the faithful, common prayers mm-hmm. said for uh, the needs of the church and the world. And interestingly, we see the sign of peace take place not during the Eucharistic prayer, but at the end of the prayer of the faithful. There's, the, there's a kiss of peace as part of the, of the celebration then. Then, of course, there's the offertory. Gifts are brought forward, bread and water and wine, as we do today. And water and wine is used still because Jesus did it that way. Mm-hmm. Um we don't, in the time of Christ, to, to make the wine last and to cut it because it was very strong, one had to use water to make it more palatable, which is why Christ used water and wine. And But we continue that practice, even though contemporary winemakers don't make wine that strong. We do that because Christ did it. And it took on in the Middle Ages sort of symbolic and allegorical interpretations, but the fact is the practice we retain is the practice of Christ. Then those gifts are offered, and then notice how it says the presider, that is the bishop, offers prayers and thanksgivings to God the Father through the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's a pattern to all Christian prayer that's Trinitarian. Our prayer is, all public prayer, almost all public prayer, is addressed to the Father through the Son 
in the Spirit. And you'll catch those prepositions in the prayers we say from time to time if you listen carefully. It's not just sort of a, a poetic codicil thrown on the end of a prayer. It actually expresses the way we relate to God. God reveals himself as Father, Son, and Spirit, but we relate to God in a sense in reverse order. It's the Spirit given to us which enables us to recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ, his identity as the beloved son. So it's the spirit who brings us to faith in the son, and it's the son, he himself says, who is the way to the father. So our mode of relating to God is in the spirit, through the son, to the father. And the public prayer of the church replicates that pattern publicly. There's a handful of prayers in the Roman Missal addressed directly to to Christ, to the son, and, and rightly so, but almost all the others are addressed to the father. And then there's the distribution of the Eucharist. And further, Justin notes, those who couldn't be present, okay, the Eucharist is brought to them by deacons. Often in parishes, you'll see people after communion, deacons or others, taking communion to the sick and homebound. Elsewhere in the first apology, chapter or two later, Justin talks about as well how there's a collection that's taken, and that that collection exists for the service of those in need. Justin wants us to connect the Eucharistic celebration, the Mass, with the ministry of charity, the work of charity that that what the Mass celebrates. It's the engine, so to speak, of the life of charity of the Church. We're propelled not just by do-goodism, not by a sense of outreach. We do those things, but what moves it is divine charity, which we've experienced in the celebration of the Eucharist that prompts the kind of action the, whole, the entire social mission of the church, the movement to the peripheries, the engine for that has got to be the Eucharist. When anything else is driving it, it's dislocated. Yeah, and that's well, good, so it's like Mother Teresa would say that yeah. uh, it's not social work. Exactly. This is this is, and which is why the the missionaries of charity would spend an hour a day in adoration. It, it is the gospel. It's just the gospel. This yes. is what the gospel is. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, and that's why she'll say. I remember there's a story of one of the sisters saying, "Why are we spending an hour? We need to be doing more work." She said, "You know, now we're going to spend two hours in prayer mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. this is the, the heart of it." And yeah. so there isn't, there doesn't have to be, and there shouldn't be a kind of rivalry or opposition between mm-hmm. the liturgical life of the church and social social justice, we might say, or outreach mm-hmm. to the poor. Yeah. But, it, but what's, we have to ask ourselves all the time. We have to keep ourselves grounded in the Eucharist mm-hmm. as, the, as you said, the source and summit, quoting Vatican II, yeah. the source and summit of our life. You know, I wonder, too, related to the, your introductory comments, which are so shrewd, you know, the, the problem we face is that the Eucharist is a thing Catholics do or a part of Catholic life. Mm-hmm. And actually that's misleading because it isn't a thing. It should be the thing. And it isn't part of our life. It is it is our life. Our life has to be rooted in, centered upon, and flow from the Eucharist. Um, it's yeah. just, it's the dangerous thing people will say. I've said this in homilies and people are a little gasped. I say, like, the most dangerous thing one of us can say is that the Catholic faith is the most important part of my life. And people sort of gasp. Because it, it shouldn't be a part of our life. It should be what formats our entire life. The mm-hmm. Eucharist isn't a thing we do on Sunday or occasionally on weekday. It is actually the mystery, the reality that should format our existence. And yeah. we see this in someone like Ignatius of Antioch, writing, you know, before 107, 110, when he dies, somewhere in there, he's being carted off to Rome to face execution. Mm-hmm. He writes a series of seven letters, and he identifies his, his himself, his discipleship, their life with that Eucharistic sacrifice, which is to say that our identity is found in that. Martyrdom and the Eucharist are deeply and intimately connected because what martyrdom is, is one taking in his own life or her own life, living out that mystery of the Eucharist most profoundly by imitating that self-gift of Christ. And it's not the kind of imitation of a self-gift where you watch Christ do it and you do it. Mm-hmm. It's you see Christ do it, and then Christ in you offers himself, and you in free union with him do the same. So it's it for Christians, it's especially important to think that imitation of Christ is never simply, here's a moral template, we've got to do this. It's actually imitation via participation, which is brought, we're brought into the mystery of Christ's death and resurrection by the sacraments. He dwells in us by grace. And so when I'm forgiving someone who's hurt me, it's actually Christ forgiving mm. in and through me. I'm freely consenting to Christ forgiving in and through yes. me, Christ loving in and through mm-hmm. me. So that this is the way we avoid any kind of crass moralism or Pelagianism where the Christian life is reducible to yeah. lots of hard work. Um, and you just got to to gut it out and fight through mm-hmm. it. There's an element of that in the Christian life, but it's got it can't be dislocated from the life of grace. Yeah, you know what what you're describing there reminds me. Sometimes people will 
on a human level say, you know, I need to stop being a human doing mm. and I need to be a human being. Mm -hmm. We often define ourselves so much by the activities that we do. And it's great to do activities. It's great to work. It's mm -hmm. great to be of service. It's great to do things. Uh, but ultimately, we know that all those things are, they flow out of our being. And at times, those activities are taken away from us, mm -hmm. either through circumstances outside our control, through sickness, through maybe being you know fired or different elements. And mm -hmm. it's crushing. And we have to kind of recover that sense of being, human being. And in a way, what I hear you describing is that our Christian life isn't merely the things we do as Christians, but it's the being of Christ that is in us. So not only are we human beings, but now in a way we're kind of Christian beings mm -hmm. where the life of Christ we receive in the Eucharist, which is really as the kind of the Eucharist in the Mass as the representation of the one and eternal mm -hmm. life of Christ, right? The life, death, and resurrection of Christ. His self-offering, his love of the Father, his journey both through death and back to the Father. That is then the reality that becomes my identity, my being, before anything else I do. And exactly. Then and I think that's really so in, enriching. And of course, it shows in a way why uh, even, you know, again, it's great to be a devoted father. It's great mm -hmm. to be a devoted mother. It's great to be a devoted teacher, to serve the poor. Um, but one of the things we discover if we've actually ever tr done that for a, a period of time is we begin to realize I can't solve all the problems of the poor. I can't somehow make it so that my children when, you know, won't suffer from a harsh world and sometimes even from their own and like my own, right, inadequacies, my own lack of judgment or their own lack of judgment. And when you're a teacher, you realize. So in a way, when you begin to try to serve other people, one of the things you realize is your fundamental inadequacy. Mm. And I think that's why people can burn out and it can be a crisis of faith. I'm sure priests can go through the same thing. You want to go and you want to go renew a parish and parish may not want to be renewed. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And that's when we have to realize it's Christ who is our sufficiency. It's mm -hmm. only God. And so our job is to help other people discover not our example, but to discover Christ's example. And that exactly. may mean, of course, by trying to you know share what God has done for us mm -hmm. and these sorts of elements. But I, I really think that's a powerful recentering of, of Christian life, Christian being as right the Eucharist kind of becomes our new, we no longer just breathe natural breath. We kind of breathe the Holy Spirit, which is given to us through the food that is now Jesus Christ. Amen. And, and it's interesting, who is the apostle, St. Paul? The great preacher, the great proclaimer. If you read Paul's letters and his speeches in Acts, how many words of Jesus does he quote? How many times does he cite the Sermon on the Mount? How many times does he replicate the narratives or discourses mm -hmm. or parables of Jesus? Never. Mm -hmm. Because for Paul, it's important to remember that Jesus didn't come principally to tell us something. The prophets did that to limited effect. Christ came principally to do something. And where you do see Paul talking about using the words of Jesus, the obsessima verba, the very words of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 and following, he talks yes. about, you know, I receive from the Lord what I'm handing on to you. That is, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, broke it, blessed it, gave it to his do this, and then do this in memory of me. And then, and then Paul goes on to say, like, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the we proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. The charismatic act of the church par excellence is the Eucharist. Wow! All right at the heart of Paul. Exactly. Paul's yes. great preaching Preacher. is and, Paul. And Paul would be the first the to tell us that the teaching mm -hmm. of Jesus matters very much. However. Paul would want us mm -hmm. to make sure that the context in which we understand, what is the hermeneutic for the preaching of Jesus? It's the cross and resurrection. Mm -hmm. As the Gospels were written in that light, in the same way, you know, all the church's catechesis, teaching, and all of that, absolutely important. Yeah. But the context in which those are situated, understood, and lived out has got to be Eucharistic. It's got mm -hmm. to be the Paschal mystery that qualifies. So for priests and deacons, those who preach, and bishops, I assume too, the altar has to interpret the anvil. That is to say, the yes. death and resurrection of Jesus becomes the lens through which all of Scripture, Old and New Testament together, is understood, 
read, prayed, and preached. Because otherwise, we've got sort of like teaching dimension, then we've got this ritual. The, the problem, I think one of the problems that we face in the contemporary situation is that our worship is sort of a ritual action that, that's reducible to sociological, anthropological, phenomenological interpretation. Like It's important for human beings to have ritual. This is the Christian, distinctively Christian ritual, blah, blah, blah. Thoroughly inadequate mm, and damaging yes. understanding of what, what we do. So that our life, the Eucharist, is the center. I think one of the challenges that the prosperity of Catholics in the United States has caused unwittingly is that, for example, the suburbanization of American Catholicism, mm. in the 1920s, in most cities, the parishes were largely ethnic. So you had the French church, the Polish church, the Irish church, the German church. And because of linguistic and cultural limitations, those parishes became the center of life for all of those people, not just what they did mm. on Sunday. Everything revolved around the parish. The melting pot, well, good in many ways, has also unwittingly diluted Catholic culture mm -hmm. in our nation so that now we have these large, beautiful, often financially successful suburban parishes. But the challenge is people see them as I go there on Sunday, fulfill my obligation, mm -hmm. and go home. There is no other connection to the parish or to Catholic life generally. If they have a connection to Catholic life, it's through Twitter or a blog or, mm -hmm. you know, Father Mike Schmitz doing good work, Bishop Barron doing good work. But that, that, that their identity as Catholics is unrooted, mm -hmm. really, in a particular community because the, this is the way Catholic ecclesiology works. The church is never reducible to any one particular place, but it can only be encountered in local particular mm -hmm. places. It doesn't exist as a reified, there's the church hovering out there that I relate to. No, the only way I can relate to the church is through a particular community. But the church at the same time is never reducible to that community. Yeah. And so it's a bigger challenge than, I think the Eucharistic revival has got to be understood in a broader, within the broader question of Catholic culture in, sure. in our nation, in our communities, in our parishes, because... Just encouraging Eucharistic devotion and piety, absolutely good things, is not going to work if there isn't a hub where that people come because that's where, not just they're getting fed on Sunday, but that, that center of our life is the parish, mm -hmm. okay, where, you know, all our, like our friendships, activities, our culture, all make sense. In the same way that I don't think that, if you look at uh, current testing nationally done of Catholic high school and college kids, um, their awareness of the doctrines of the faith is actually better than it was 40 years ago. And I think that the catechisms and the catechisms that were produced by it or from it have helped enormously. Here's what's lacking. There is no culture in which those doctrines make sense. That is to say, a young person today can know, can pass a test to answer all the questions. And yet those doctrines are like the periodic table. They're factoids that float in their mind without any coherent context for them to exist. There's nothing organic about it. And I think that, for example, mm -hmm. we will find young Catholics today, high school or college kids, who simultaneously in their mind hold that uh, same-sex acts are intrinsically disordered, and gay marriage is probably a good thing. It's never entered the mind that those two things are in conflict because mm -hmm. there's not an organic, like the organic, the analogy of faith is not there. So there's no organic place for the doctrines of the church, including Eucharistic faith and piety, to fit. And so it's just yeah. an, it's an activity that is part of my life, but I, yeah. they're unaware of how it fits into the whole, or mm -hmm. how it actually should form Which is really fascinating if we go back to the earlier part yes. of the conversation where, right, that sense of like, if the Eucharist as the fundamental mystery of Christ's mm -hmm. work of salvation and Christ's person, right, as it enters into history, and that becomes the centering principle, then it's kind of, again, what we experience today is kind of a fragmentation. Yes. And so I think one of the works that we want to do, both in parishes and, and through other you know movements, and I think whatever we can find, uh, and I think at times, right, the church probably has had always both uh, parish and diocesan life, and then at the same time, you know, orders and monasteries yes. and this kind of, uh, this, this kind of mutual en enrichment uh, but 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 with that idea that then we can create a certain sense of a, not only an intellectual center but a spiritual center, really a home, mm. right? Mm -hmm. That that we find in the church in Jesus Christ, uh, and then that becomes the center around which we can not only form right our lives, uh, our work, our study has meaning because it fits within this. Our thoughts about politics or our thoughts about you know, different uh, moral issues or thoughts about, you know, questions about who I am, mm -hmm. right, all begin to find meaning and purpose. And so 
I think that's just uh, so well put. Uh, you know, Father, let's let's take a we're going to take a quick break. Sure. And when we get back, I really want to do kind of two uh, things. One, just given your role right as an academic dean at a major seminary, what are some of the things that you want to teach? or that you certainly want uh, your priests to both learn and to go teach about kind of uh, recovering that um, mm-hmm. that Eucharistic culture you're talking about. And then also want to uh, look again at, uh, say, maybe uh, some things from Irenaeus and Ignatius to see how is it that they, in a very chaotic pagan yes. world— Not um, that unlike our own. Exactly. exactly. How they managed what they taught and how they lived that. So— We'll, Absolutely. we'll take a break and come right back. Thank you. Father. You're listening to The Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University. If you'd like to support our mission, we invite you to prayerfully consider joining our Annunciation Circle, a monthly giving program aimed at supporting our staff, faculty, and Catholic faith formation. You can visit us at avemaria.edu to learn more. Thank you for your continued support. And now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to the Catholic Theology Show. And I'm delighted today to have Monsignor Michael Heinz, Academic Dean of Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland, with us. So thanks again for being on the show. And I'm, I'm delighted. Thanks for the invitation. And we'd love to, I'd love just to kind of ask, kind of a big picture, given your role, mm-hmm. Academic Dean at a major seminary, what are some of the key things that you want to teach priests and that you want them to teach others about, uh, right, recovering uh, this centrality of really Eucharistic life? Well, first of all, I would say the, I'm very blessed. I've been there seven years now at the Mount, and I am very edified by the young men who come to the seminary today. Um, they, it's Some men, it's, it means leaving behind a lucrative job, uh, you know, a, a young woman with whom he had a very good relationship and realized that God's calling to this. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more cost today to some men leaving and coming mm-hmm. to the seminary than there was, say, 50 or 100 years ago. Guys who went, I went right out of high school, so I was what we call a lifer. Um, I never actually had to give up anything significant mm-hmm. to come to the seminary, whereas mm-hmm. there are men today who are lawyers, physicians, who've, who've, who've let go of that life. You know, they went from living in their own home, having their own car, their own life, mm-hmm. to living in a dorm with a bunch of kids who are a little younger than they are. <laughs> um, but what I find is a deep love, a deep appreciation of the prayer life. One of the things that I, edifies me, has edified me about the Mount is there's a culture there that we're, that takes the life of prayer very seriously. Oh, that's and, beautiful. Well, and again, I didn't create it. I walked into it and like, wow, mm-hmm. this is great. And it was built over the last century, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But there, there's never a moment when you go to any chapel on campus where there aren't men in there praying. And mm, these are men yeah. who take their prayer. And the culture of the Holy Hour is very strong there. When I was in seminary, you know, 40 years ago, 35 years ago, the language of Holy Hour just wasn't as prominent, you know. Uh, now, no one's bound to do a Holy Hour. No priest is bound to do a Holy Hour. But the, we, it's inculcated in the men there the importance of the life of prayer. So everything that I do in a classroom, I think, is rooted in their relationship with the Lord. As a teacher, if I do anything well, it's when the man says to me, like, you know, like this is really this class is helping my prayer life. I'm like, then I'm doing the right thing. That, yeah. that tells me I'm on the right track. Mm-hmm. Um, what I want them to, to to have is like that integrated vision that we spoke about earlier, that organic analogy of the faith, where where all the pieces of the of the faith are not disparate pieces or discrete elements. They are rather part of a whole that makes sense. And honestly, if we can communicate that whole in our preaching and catechesis, what happens is all of a sudden the things people are doing all the time now have new meaning to them. It's like, oh, this makes sense. And so that, that their preaching can deliver the, the fullness of that, that vision. So it's not one particular doctrine that needs to be reaffirmed. What I find is they're deeply faithful. I don't have to try to persuade any of them that Jesus is truly God or that mm-hmm. Mary was perpetually a virgin mm-hmm. or that Christ is truly present in the sacrament. You know, that this is, this is, this, that's not, that's a no-brainers to them. If anything, it's a question of learning how to, how do you, tell, helping them to, how do you deliver that to people who, like weren't in seminary for eight years, mm-hmm, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I find in teaching homiletics that sometimes it's like everything you said is true, and not going to be very helpful because you need to be able to translate it into language that people you who are hearing mm-hmm. you can understand. Which isn't does not mean watering everything down, making it fluffy. It means like teaching people. So, for example, if in a homily someone uses the word concupiscence, that's actually a really important term in the tradition. Yeah. My advice is not mm-hmm. don't use it. It's if you do use it. 
explain it. Yes. So that when yes. people leave church, they now have a new word in their lexicon that's part of the tradition, and they also understand what it means, rather than it's like, yes. Father talked about this thing today, but I have no idea what he was saying. So I think it's helping them to be mm-hmm. good teachers and preachers. But but to really, do you want to define? By the way, concupiscence, real quick. Oh yes, our yeah, disorder, dis, uh, a moral feebleness, uh, disordered, uh, our propensity to sin. Yeah, the, 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 our, right. our yeah. Weak, moral weakness yeah. that, that yeah. all of us have. That's a result of original sin. Sorry. Yeah. No, I just thought be. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, that's funny. That's funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and, funny. Um, but no, I love yeah. that idea. That yeah, yeah, that's a great example. Because though, I think right, preaching, yeah. you, you don't have yeah. to. You have to dumb it down. You can actually use words of the tradition, but make sure you tell them what that means. So in any case, I, yeah. I find I find teaching them and is a joy. They're one. They're they're earnest. They love the Lord. They love they love Jesus. They love the church. Well, how encouraging that's. Yeah, just, no, that's it's it's really it is. It's, it is you, the church. The future yeah. of the church is in, in good hands. Yeah, and I know I can uh, speak as a professor here at Ave Maria University for you know, over twenty years now, and you know, wow, that's just my experience too. Yeah. I, I love. Uh, students come in with if you say kind of like, hey, we're going to get to read Augustine today. They're excited. Mm-hmm. They think, wow, I want to learn more about Augustine. Because I think students today who are kind of intentional about wanting to learn more about their faith and deepen their faith have a certain sense uh, that the answers from their culture about who they are, about who God is, about meaning in life are empty. Mm-hmm. Right, and so they don't want to right tear down the tradition. They want to find their way into the tradition Great because way to put it. Uh, the tradition. I think we realize, and maybe there was a time in the seventies and eighties and nineties when not as many people realized this is that the tradition is fragile. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a way, God will save it, and in that sense, yes, of course, it's not fragile. But passing it on from one generation to the next is is something that requires work we need to preserve and honor and respect the tradition or it can evaporate mm-hmm. in a generation or two as as we've seen happen and sometimes with the kind of deeply post-christianization or, or secularization dechristianization that has happened there's a beautiful line from gustav mahler who's a composer in the 20th century but he says tradition is not the worship of ashes but the preservation of a fire. Mm. And I love thinking of myself as a teacher, I am totally inadequate to pass on the mysteries of God and to pass on this incredible patrimony that we have. I'm still just dipping my toe in the water of sure. the of, of this great Christian tradition. Uh, but when I think about that idea, wait a second, have I received the flame of learning? Yeah. Can I keep that flame of learning alive? Yeah. Can I pass on that flame to a few more candles? Yeah. And it's like a much easier, I don't have to master the tradition, but if I can receive the tradition and pass it on, then we can help preserve that fire. And anyway, just wonderful no, to hear the, you describe that with our that's uh, very beautiful. young priests. I think, I think you're quite right. And, and like, we're, I'm still a student of the tradition. I'm not a master of it, you know? And, <laughs> yes. But if you, if you actually are on fire with like, if it, if it kindles in you a fire, mm-hmm. they're going to see that. And they're yeah. going to like, what is it that he's got, mm-hmm. she's got that I want? It's, it's yeah. that, that love for the truth. Yeah. And these truths transform. Yes. Uh, that's the whole thing is I want meaning, right? It's not like I'm, I don't have to choose between truth and meaning. It's yeah. that actually meaning is found when we discover truths uh, that actually transform us. So Pope, Pope uh, Benedict yeah, please. pointing out that the, the, the deepest meaning of Logos is meaning. So who yes. is Christ? He's the meaning made flesh. If you want mm-hmm. meaning, go to Christ because he is the Logos par excellence. Uh, that's beautiful. And by the way, anybody who wants to listen to a, an extra podcast on uh, uh, Pope John Paul, sorry, on Pope Benedict, um, you can uh, look at one of the earlier episodes uh, that uh, Dr. Roger Nutt and I did oh, on wonderful. the theological legacy of Pope Benedict. Uh, but I wanted just to kind of shift gears now. Sure. We were talking about kind of today. Let's go back to the second mm-hmm. century, mm-hmm. right? Actually, really with St. Ignatius, right? The first, not even the first, I mean, you know, he, he dies around 107, maybe mm-hmm. 110. So the first, just the beginning of the second I mean, century. Just, think of just a couple of decades after the last books of the New Testament were composed. Yeah. I mean, just a very right, so John might have... We don't know exactly, but he might have died in the 80s. Yeah, he could have died maybe even later. He could have been even closer. I mean, it's very, yes. very, very close. He's understood to have been a, yes. a young yes. man. Yes, yes. And at, he lived at 33, long. and he you know lives uh, a long time. So Ignatius, though, in this, he writes seven letters mm-hmm. as he's being uh, taken to eventually um, be martyred in the Colosseum. And he has a beautiful line where he even, uh, that often people know, he like he desires to have his body ground into the 
bread of and wheat of Christ by the teeth of the lions. Um, and he can use yeah. that language and speak that way. That has, you know, we, we can say, oh, it's Eucharistic. Absolutely. Here's the irony. He's using it knowing full well that everyone who reads it's going to understand it that way. So there's a yes. deep Eucharistic mm-hmm. piety already in place rather yeah. than him having to say, and what I mean by that, folks, is yes. Yes. it's he can use this. And again, here's the thing. His captors wouldn't understand what he's talking about if he were talking like that. Mm-hmm. Christians would. He knows that. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's also, by the way, I, I always have a few students who say, like, well, do you think he is, does he want to die? And, and of course, you always get remember, like, He's he's going to die. There's nothing you can do. There's no power. There's no earthly power that's going to undo the Roman Empire's mm-hmm. judgment, mm-hmm. right? So he is kind of saying that I will accept joyfully. You know, I will conform myself to the will of God as expressed in the midst of this horrible situation. He's not like the martyrs never actually pursue death. Yeah. Um, well, it, that's exactly, and that's yeah. precisely an imitation of Christ. Yes, yes. Know, like Christ knowing everything that was coming upon him, as John says. Went out and greeted, like he knew. Yeah. Again, he knew. Mm-hmm. I was recently privileged to be in the Holy Land, and uh, one of the things you discovered is that from the Garden of Gethsemane, mm. you can look across the Kidron Valley to uh, Herod's Palace, and you could, he could have seen them coming, like with torches and wow. lamps. He, again, a co- mm-hmm. cohort's a large number. He would have seen them coming, so he would have known. Yes. You know? And so, when he goes out yeah. to wake the disciples, they're 20 minutes away. You know, are you, mm-hmm. it comes, are you, they're 10 minutes away. Like yeah, yeah. all of a sudden, he knows everything that's going to happen to him. He could have run away. Mm-hmm. He had plenty of time to escape. Yeah. He chose not to. And, and Ignatius, mm-hmm. in imitation of his master, isn't yeah. going to run mm-hmm. away. Mm-hmm. And beautifully, he still asks the father to take the cup yes, away exactly. from him. So he says, exactly. Father, if you are willing, yeah, yeah. take this cup away. Divert this. Yes. But I'm not going to run away. I will accept the suffering. And so there's this beautiful line in one of his letters to uh, the Smyrnians, mm-hmm. uh, to Smyrnia. Um, but he says this. This is Ignatius. They hold aloof. He's criticizing those who basically ultimately reject the t- real death and the real resurrection mm-hmm. of Jesus because, well, for a variety of reasons. Why do people reject the resurrection today? But he, then he goes on a little far. They hold aloof from the Eucharist and from services of prayer because they refuse to admit that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ which suffered for our sins and which in his goodness the Father raised. Beautiful. Right? So just, I mean, because I think some people do wonder, is right is the Eucharist just a symbol? Yep. Uh, um, I think if you read any of the fathers, it's very clear it can't be just a symbol. Um, in the words of Flannery O'Connor, you know, the 20th century American Catholic writer from Georgia, if it's just a symbol to hell with it. Yeah. You know, she's like, I don't, mm-hmm. I'm not going to believe this. And mm-hmm. Ignatius is writing, there, there's a clearly... A, you know, the time that Ignatius is writing, actually the time of the fourth gospel is being written, there, culturally, the body was considered an impediment. Flesh is not a good thing. The, mm-hmm. the, the John in one line can link the word with flesh. The word became flesh, or logos and sarx, linking them in the same sentence mm-hmm. would have been incoherent to so many ancients of the of Greek Hellenistic background because yeah. of their Platonism. They would have been like, they don't go together. Mm-hmm. And there were a number of of quasi-Christian groups, probably in the New Testament times and beyond, who refuse the reality of Jesus' bodily existence. So not only does Ignatius want to make clearly, numerous times in his letters he says he truly was born of Mary, truly suffered under Pontius, truly died, truly was raised. And now here he wants to connect that reality also to the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. The Eucharist, Jesus wasn't a phantom or a symbol. Mm -hmm. Sorry, contemporary Christology people who say Jesus (laughs) is a symbol of God. It wasn't a symbol, and neither is the Eucharist a symbol. Wow. You know, the Eucharist is mm-hmm. Christ present to us under the appearances of bread and wine. Yeah. Doesn't look like flesh, doesn't look like blood, but the reality is 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 the fact. Yes. And and again, you know, that's he's writing this around 107. Mm-hmm. Uh John, the apostle John, would have written his gospel, well, whenever, mm-hmm. but let's just late, say late, late first century. Late yeah. first century. He is a spiritual father, mm-hmm. perhaps um, you know, of Polycarp. Mm-hmm. Polycarp communicates the message of Jesus and also John's teachings, right? About so I was to say, if you want to kind of find out what John 6 says, well, you could read there are a lot of different ways, I think, just from the text yes. itself. But one way, just a fun way of checking it is to kind of say, well, what does Ignatius of Antioch teach about John 6? And <laughs> what you see is that when he says, right, unless you eat the flesh and drink my well, blood, you won't you have, have no life, life with in you, that. Ignatius makes it clear that the word truly became flesh 
that's real in the incarnation. And then the word that became flesh continues to give himself to mm -hmm. us in this Eucharistic meal, like, which is, and again, it's not only a meal, it's a sacrifice mm -hmm. because it's, we, we participate. It's a sacrifice, right? In the Old Testament, the sacrifices are those they're only, you have to consume them mm -hmm. in order to make yes. them your own. And so this certain sense, it's not just a meal like you and I getting a meal. This is a sacrificial meal. Exactly. Yeah, I think that the contemporary question of like, well, is it a meal or is it a sacrifice? Well, actually, it is both, but it is only a meal because it is first a sacrifice. Because the yeah, type of meal it is. Like, in other words, there's nothing, there, implicit in the idea of sacrifice is meal because you're to consume what's offered. There's nothing implicit in meal about the sacrifice is not implicit in the concept of meal in the way that meal is complete. So the governing, the governing idea is sacrifice. And so it is a meal, but it's a sacrificial meal. And I, when you look at uh, Polycarp's martyrdom, so the letter the church of Smyrna wrote after he was martyred, if you read it, you're like, wow, this is just like Jesus. There's a Herod, there's a betrayal, there's a garden, there's, he's dying, you know, and, and it's like, wow, they must've like, like tried to make this like the murder of Jesus. It's like, no, it wasn't contrived. It was like, actually, they understood martyrdom. Like the lens through which they interpreted their experience is the dying and rising of Jesus. It wasn't, those, were, those weren't worked up to make the story fit. That's actually how they, that, this is how they see their existence. Would that we all viewed our experience every day, whatever's going on, in terms of that mystery, We'd understand it a lot better. You know, and it's shocking, too, when you put it that way, because you realize that a lot of these teachers from whom we're reading right now were martyrs. Yes, exactly. And, and they died for their faith, right? The apostles, um, you know, were all martyred for their mm -hmm. faith. John was exiled. Mm -hmm. uh, these, Polycarp and Ignatius, right? I think it's the first 23 popes oh, yeah. were martyred. Well, uh, and, so and these all people, the first saints, because yeah. it wasn't until Martin of Tours that we have someone who wasn't a martyr. Who's, exactly. Who's understood so as a saint. these... You know, these, it's not just that they died and told us these truths. Mm -hmm. In part, Ignatius is dying for these truths, that the truth that, that, that he found something in this message about Jesus, mm -hmm. that the one who created the universe somehow saved us, the one who created us saved us through the death and resurrection mm -hmm. of Jesus Christ, in whose name we could be baptized, uh, whose spirit we could receive, and then whose very flesh and blood we could eat and therefore be restored into right, loving, Eucharistic, thanksgiving relationship with the Father as now, in the Spirit, children of God. Right? This is, right, I mean, they, 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 they left behind much and encountered a very, right, a very hostile, dangerous, lethal culture. And they in, in early, you know, in, in the early centuries of Rome. And they understood their existence as a recapitulation of that mystery, mm -hmm. that's why they that's why they died as martyrs. They understood that, like, yeah. if I if I have to receive this mystery, I'm going to have to live this mystery. Yeah. And now, mm -hmm. even today, no one has to run out and turn themselves in. In fact, in the martyrdom of Polycarp, there's a man named Quintus who turns himself in to be martyred, mm -hmm. and then he, he later recants the faith because. And so there's a you don't go looking for yeah. trouble, mm -hmm. but if it comes, mm -hmm. you accept it. And this this idea that I'm going to offer myself. To God, I'm going to be, and yeah. people today can do that. You don't have to run out and be killed. You know, parents can do that by death to self, little deaths to self every day, whether getting up at two in the morning mm -hmm. to change a diaper, mm -hmm. working that extra shift to pay for yeah. kids' school. Mm -hmm. That there are all kinds of deaths that we can experience daily. Mm -hmm. Maybe just biting our tongue when we're going to say something snarky, but that's a small death that recapitulates the dying and rising of the Lord because it's an act of charity. Right, and I think so many. I, I see but the Eucharist some, feeds yeah. that. We can't do that without the Eucharist. That's exactly right, and I see also. And maybe this especially, I don't know if, you know, in, in your perspective might be a little different, but I see a lot of people that are kind of discerning vocations, wanting vocations. Uh, and there's a lot of pain and often suffering and loss associated with that. Mm -hmm. People might, you know, all they want to do is get married, but but they can't find suitable partner. Uh, and they have to offer that. Uh, maybe they want to, they enter religious life or they try out religious mm -hmm. life and a year later, doesn't work out for them, mm -hmm. yeah, and, and and just so many different ways. There are people that get married and then are you know dealing with uh, miscarriages and child infertility, uh, and I just think so many different people. And this idea that it's in that very moment of that brokenness, mm. right? Um, in that moment of that brokenness, in which our heart, and I believe it's Psalm fifty-one, which is this, um, you know, oh, God have mercy on me, a sinner. 
from that certain sense of a broken and contrite heart, O Lord, you will not spurn. And so the true sacrifice that we can offer in a way is through the very brokenness that we have when we accept so much of what we want, even if we have holy desires, most of those, a lot of those desires in their earthly aspects are not going to be fulfilled. Mm -hmm. But the broken heart that God will not spurn is not only our own. It's really the very heart of Jesus. Mm. It's the heart of Jesus, right, that is on the cross, pierced by the sword from which blood and water flow, which is really the realities of the Eucharist and the thing. So so I just, I think it's something, especially as we talk about like priesthood or marriage or other things like that, is just to see like everybody in their baptismal vocation exactly. is already, and that wherever that is, and often, again, I, I you know, it, it's hard, or, or I'm sure you, I don't want to uh, speak out of turn, but I'm sure you have priests who have a great desire to go serve Jesus become ordained, and then perhaps have to deal with a lot of difficulties, maybe under uh, a senior pastor with whom they don't agree, or a bishop who restricts things, or parishioners who just aren't quite interested. And, you know, and you have to kind of take whatever you thought your vocation was going to be, and then conform it back to that death and resurrection of Jesus Christ all vocations, in a way, conform back to the mystery of baptism. Yeah. And of a senior pastor, man, I respect deeply. We're talking about priests who struggle, you know, uh, guys who take stepped away from ministry, that kind of thing. And he said, you know what, these guys need to realize is that it's always about the death and resurrection. Mm-hmm. It's like, and here's a guy who's experienced it again and again in his life. Yeah. It's, and that's not just for priests; that's every baptized person. Yeah. Sometimes the Lord dashes our own plans and dreams. Not because he doesn't love us, but because yeah. he wants us to love his dreams and plans, his his desires yeah. for us. Mm-hmm. And too often my own, yeah, I could be in a parish where I didn't want to be in this parish, I want to be in that parish. Mm-hmm. Well, here's what God called me to be. So holiness yeah. doesn't begin in a circumstance that I want to imagine. It has to begin mm-hmm. right now. And that will always involve that death to self. Yeah, that's so beautiful. And, and there can be that way in which I think sometimes we can, as we uh, right, discuss, Discover God's calling in our lives, and we want to say yes to God, and we want to do great things for God, uh, that it's only natural that we would start thinking about the great things we want to do for God. Mm-hmm. Raise a perfect family, I don't know, you know, yeah. have a perfect parish, uh, make perfect holy hours, whatever these things are. And there's a, and yet all of that is also at the same time, even if they're good, they can also be the projections of our own ego trying to sure. like impose upon the world what we want. And right, I, I love the line in the uh, our Father, which is just so strange and so powerful. It's that your name be holy, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done. And in a subtle way, what we're actually doing is that's a massive correction because mm-hmm. largely what I want to do, even for God, is to build up my name for God, my kingdom, kingdom for God, mm-hmm. and my will for God. But that deep sense in which, no, it's to say yes to God for today. Uh, and that's, in a way, our, our our vocation. And yes, do beautiful things for God, but to recognize that the outcomes are totally outside our control. And uh, it's a, such a beautiful, rich tradition of saying uh, this deep abandonment to the divine will. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's all there in the Eucharist. I was going to say, uh, that just, all those things are only pot, Like, we can only say yes. the Lord's Prayer. And actually, we can say it as baptized persons. We can only actually affect it if we're sharing in the Eucharist. Yeah, I love it. it even says we dare to pray. Right, exactly. We can only dare to pray it because Christ not only commanded us to, but he's praying it in yes, us. Exactly. All, all we're doing is sort of aligning ourselves with him in us, praying that to the Father, hoping yeah. that our abandonment to, to the Father could would that it could be as as pure as Christ's. Well, that's beautiful. Let's um as we close, uh, I just wanted to ask you kind of three quick questions sure. that I try to ask a lot of our guests. And uh, what's what's a book you're reading? Um, right now, I am reading a little book by Jean Corbon, who's a uh, who's deceased now. He was a Melkite mm-hmm. priest. A little book on Christian experience. It's basically a book on how to read the Bible. Ah. Um, and uh, he's a great spiritual writer. He wrote yeah. a famous book, uh, Liturgy de Sora, uh, Wellspring, Wellspring of Worship. worship. Wellspring this, of Worship. This is a Jean? Jean Corbon, C-O-R-B-O-N. Yeah. Yeah, B-I-N, right? Or B-O-N, B-O-N. B-O-N. C-O-R-B-O-N. B-O-N. B-O-N. Yeah. Is, is, I, I heard that he helped contribute to the fourth he, part of the catechism. He was the principal author of the fourth yeah. part of the catechism. Oh, that's beautiful. On prayer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A Melkite priest. He was originally one of the, the, the Père Blanc of Africa, the White Fathers of Africa, uh, and then 
became a member of the Melkite Catholic mm -hmm. community in okay. Beirut. He wrote the fourth part of the catechism in a basement because it was during the war between Israel and Lebanon that that was being written. So he's, you know, his bombs are flying overhead wow. and he's writing the fourth part of the catechism. Mm -hmm. But he's a, he's a remarkable writer, not an easy writer, but mm -hmm. um, I've read The Wellspring many times, but I wanted to read this book on, on the mm -hmm. Christian experience. I can't remember the What's English the title. Okay. It's like a Christian experience in the Bible or something. Okay. It's a misleading title because really mm -hmm. what it is is how we should read the Bible, like how to read it for prayer. Um, not so much for exegesis necessarily mm -hmm. or study, but just for prayer. So I'm reading that. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Well, that's great. That's great. And um, what's a, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm sure you have many as a priest, uh, but what's just one uh, daily practice uh, that you do to uh, draw closer to God and find meaning? Every morning, uh, again, I, I mentioned at the Mount, the culture of the Holy Hour is very big. And so mm -hmm. I usually am um, in chapel an hour before the we have morning prayer to Mass. Uh, mm -hmm. And I do... You know, Lexio Divina, say the office, some personal prayer with the Lord, med mm. med mental prayer. That that's the that's the I, mm -hmm. my prayer every morning is you know like I want to I will to give this hour to you and then I will to live with you in recollection and communion with you wow. the rest of the day because awesome. if I don't do that, the day is just yeah. I use language of dislocated. I think it's apart from Christ, outside of Christ, it's yeah. in the vicinity mm -hmm. of Christ isn't good enough. Mm -hmm. You know, it's got to be in Christ. Yeah, I had this image of uh, somebody talked had that idea like. And, and you, you don't want to, this isn't, it's not magically or like um, true, okay? But, but, but this idea that almost like, you know, if, if, if we're sick with like, you know, we, we sometimes need like radiation mm. therapy to purify us mm. in different ways. So sometimes like just being in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament, again, it's not, you don't want to, is kind of that kind of like, it's that mm. kind of like, it's that therapy where we learn to kind of purify what is not in a line with God. But then it's all maybe like a, like a grow lamp or something mm -hmm. where you're also then growing. And that, that sense of being in somebody's presence is, you know, yeah, we can pray to God anywhere, but we also, sometimes we can only pray to God anywhere because we pray to God somewhere. And I do think that sense of trying to be in the presence of Jesus is, is something that can really be, um, you know, fruitful. Absolutely. Uh, Bishop you know. Denoya, Archbishop Denoya once said, you know, someone said, what's the difference between praying uh -huh. in front of a tabernacle and praying in front of the exposed sacrament? He said, well, it's not that, Jesus is more present to me, mm. but I'm more present to him. Yeah. And yeah. and the other thing mm. to note about that is that the Holy Hour, Eucharistic Adoration, is like most of life. It's not necessarily exciting. Yeah. You know what? Mm -hmm. He's just there. Mm -hmm. And all he's asking for us to do yeah. is just be there. Yeah. How well, how well put. Father, uh, Father, just one last question. What's, uh, what's one belief uh, that you held about God uh, that you kind of learned at some point was false? And in a way, how did that false belief about God, you know, kind of lead you astray in yeah, a way? Think, and what was the yeah, truth? I think you when discovered? I was when I was younger, um, especially the idea that I had to prove my worth to God mm. by my moral by being morally upstanding or whatever mm -hmm. that that in fact I had to earn God's love mm -hmm. um, and mercy, and that sort of Pelagianism within me that if I just use my freedom right, everything would be good. Yeah, um, and the recognition mm -hmm. that no, like actually God's loving me. Even in my sins, doesn't mm -hmm. love the sins, but he's loving me even in the sins. Yeah, and that mm -hmm. you don't earn it; it's a pure gift, and we don't deserve. No one deserves it. So you know, uh, I joke with, with seminarians all the time. You know, at the, at the ordination ceremony, the right, it's the bishop asks, "Have you found him to be worthy?" Mm -hmm. And the, the true answer is absolutely not. But you're going to ordain him anyway because yes. no one's mm -hmm. worthy mm -hmm. of, of any of the graces or gifts of God. But God lavishes them upon us anyway. Yeah. So. Well, how, how how beautiful. Thank you uh, for sharing that and. Uh, thanks so much for being on our show today. It's an and, honor. And uh, so just for uh, listeners, uh, this is Monsignor um, Michael Heinz, who's with us, academic dean at the uh, Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland. And uh, this is one of our episodes that's focusing on uh, a series on the Eucharist and trying to recover and deepen right, our understanding, devotion, mm -hmm. understanding of devotion to the Eucharist, and to try to kind of live out and contribute to uh, this Eucharistic revival uh, that we've been called to do by uh, our spiritual fathers. Maybe so. Great. Thank you so much, Father. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app to help others find the show. And if you want to take the next step, please consider joining our Annunciation Circle so we can continue to bring you more free content. We'll see you next time on the Catholic Theology Show.